And can I advise members that question number two has been withdrawn? I call Cahill Poison. Kesh Deverahain, let a hold question number one, please. Mr Speaker, since the publication of Prisons 2020, The Way Forward, in July 2018, the Northern Ireland Prison Service has driven a programme of continuous improvement across the organisation with the aim of delivering better rehabilitation for people in our care. During the first two years of the programme, we have seen significant progress made towards the strategic commitments across each of the four strands of the programme – our people, our services, our infrastructure and our partnerships. Plans for the first two years of the programme detailed over 180 deliverables, which have resulted in significant improvements for both staff and for people in our care. The programme has now entered its third and final year, and consideration is being given to how we will maintain the drive for continuous improvement. In light of the achievements made in Prisons 2020, I am committed to implementing a consecutive programme to continue the next stage of our continuous improvement journey. The process to develop our strategic commitments for the next three years will involve analysis of the outcomes of the Prisons 2020 programme, consideration of our recent Eugenia inspection reports, and consultation with our staff, partner organisations and wider stakeholders. Members will recognise, however, that prisons are a complex and challenging environment which has been impacted by the pandemic. These pressures and restrictions have delayed the development stage of the next programme. However, I will be progressing this with the Director-General once it is deemed safe to do so and aim to have the next plan in place during 2021. I could thank the Minister for her answer, but Minister, you be aware that despite some real improvements in our prisons, several inspections of prisons, including McGilligan and McGabry, have reported worst outcomes for prisoners from disadvantaged communities, particularly those in the Catholic community. So my question to the Minister is what work has been undertaken by her department to identify the causes of this disparity and to develop effective responses? Mr Speaker, the causes of people being inside the prison system are multifaceted and complex, and the disparity in terms of the numbers of people within the prison system is not something that the prison system itself has any control over. Um, people are committed to our care um, by the, the judiciary and the courts. Um, however, in terms of supporting vulnerable people in prison, it is a key area. Um, of priority for prison service, and that was clear uh, both in Prisons 2020 and will continue to be a focus in the next phase of continual improvement. I think what people have seen in terms of the reviews of prisons um, and the reports on prisons is a significant improvement since the introduction um, of the SPAR Evolution um, programme, a person-centred approach in terms of care planning, which focuses on supporting the individual. It also aims to support individual needs for people in crisis or distress, addressing the root causes of the crisis or distress, while supporting them through that period in a way that is right for them. And of course, as with all prisoners, the focus is on rehabilitation and re-entry into the wider community in a successful way. I call Sinead Bradley. And thank the Minister for her answer so far. Minister, during the launch of the strategy, I know it was anticipated to run to March 21. Does the Minister intend to publish a final report following the final quarterly submission from the Prison Service Management Board, who have provided the oversight arrangements for the programme? Yes, it would be our intention um, to produce a final report because that will also be the basis on which we will be planning um, for any other continuous improvement programme that will be issued consecutive and subsequent to the completion 
of Prisons 2020. I would have hoped to be in a position to have been able um, to have more development work on that done this year, but given the extent of the impact on Prisons of COVID-19, it simply has not been possible. However, we are hopeful that we will be able to do that during 2021. I call Doug Beattie. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Um, and it's good to hear the Minister say that people are one of her priority, and quite rightly so. Uh, so, can I ask the Minister, although it's not a statutory responsibility of the Prisoners' Ombudsman, would the Minister support the Ombudsman's request to look at the staffing level of night custody officers at Her Majesty's Prison, McGabry? Well, Mr Speaker, the member continues to return to this issue despite the fact that the Director General for Prisons has been very clear um, in respect of the fact that our prisons are properly staffed um, and adequately staffed. We will, of course, consider any request from the Prisoner Ombudsman um, to look at any aspect of prison service, but I would ask the member um, to reflect on the information that has been provided on a number of occasions by the, uh, by the Director General in respect particularly of their management, um, both of night custody and indeed daytime. I call Jim Alistair. Um, Deputy Speaker, given the very clear connection between our prisons and our criminal justice system, would the Minister think it appropriate to join in a tribute to Lord Kerr, who sadly, suddenly passed away this morning? Lord Kerr is a man I have known throughout my professional life, first as a member of the Bar and then as he progressed through the various tiers of the judiciary and served with distinction at a time when many judges were under serious threat and some were murdered by the IRA. And of course, he became our Lord Chief Justice and went on to be our representative in the Supreme Court until just three months ago. So would the minister join in a tribute to him and in condolences to his wife, Gillian, and family? Um, Mr Deputy Speaker, very much so. Um, as the member has indicated, um, the former Lord Chief Justice of Northern Ireland, Brian Kerr, passed away very sadly today. Um, between 2009, when the Supreme Court was reconstituted in its modern format, um, until his retirement only months ago. Um, he served as a member of that Supreme Court, and indeed on his retirement, he was the only um, serving member who was there when the court was constituted. Um, he has distinguished himself in terms of his service to Northern Ireland, and in particular his service to the judiciary. But I think it goes much more wide than that. I think it is about to the rule of law and to our expectations of fairness and justice. He also distinguished himself when he was on the Supreme Court in terms of standing up for people's rights, um, and it is something that he, he spoke about often with passion. Um, so it's something that I think we're all very grateful to him for, and I would join with um, Mr Alistair in extending my condolences to his wife and children. Moving on, I call Michelle McLevine. Mr Deputy Speaker. Uh, Mr Deputy Speaker, with your permission, I will answer questions 3 and 12 together. I received Judge Marinan's final report from his independent review of hate crime yesterday. It is a substantial piece of work, over four volumes, running to approximately 885 pages and 34 recommendations. It is very commendable that he has been able to undertake such a thorough piece of work on this important issue. And colleagues will appreciate, of course, that having just received the report, I will now need to take some time to carefully consider all of the recommendations that he has made and indeed the context that he sets out for them. The next steps will include my officials working to develop an implementation plan which takes account of the recommendations contained within the report. 
Whilst the report is wide-ranging, the primary purpose of the review has been to consider the legislation associated with hate crime, and so I will want to give particular consideration to any legislative recommendations emanating from Judge Marinan's report. Any legislative changes will need to be scheduled into the Department's legislative programme in due course. I have written to Judge Marinan and met with him today to thank him for undertaking the review of hate crime legislation. Um, I want to place on record my thanks to him and to his team for their hard work um, in what was a very complex review and at times very challenging circumstances, particularly in light of the onset of the COVID, uh, onset of the COVID pandemic. I also want to pay tribute to those victims of hate crime um, who spoke with such candour um, to Judge Marinan and allowed him, I think, to see um, the impact of hate crime in our community and, I think, advise us um, very fulsomely on the way to tackle any deficiencies in the current system. Thank you, Mr. Deputy Speaker, and appreciate the um, response by the Minister. Um, and obviously, whenever I submitted the question, I didn't anticipate it being quite so timely. Um, can I first com commend Judge uh, Marin and his team for the comprehensive report um, which they have compiled? And while I appreciate that the Minister has uh, only just received it and it is lengthy, can the Minister assure us that in her consideration of the report and in the proposed legislation that she will ultimately bring to this chamber, that she will ensure that private conversations in the home will continue not to be subject to criminal law? Well, Mr Speaker, um, I think that there are a number of things that have been said. In terms of freedom of speech, it is something that I know um, Judge Marinan reflected upon uh, when it came um, to, to his report. And we need to read and consider very carefully the balance um, that he has read. And I do think we also need to consider that there are conversations which happen in the home, which would be captured, for example, by our domestic abuse offence, which we're about to pass through this chamber. So we have to be conscious that there are limitations even within the home in terms of what is, what is deemed appropriate and inappropriate. Um, so if someone, for example, is engaged in threatening conduct within the home as part of a conversation, that is not acceptable. That is, that is abuse. And so I wouldn't want to give, if you like, a blanket, um, a blanket um, uh, confirmation of my position on that. I think we need to look carefully at the report, look at the balance um, between the issues around hate crime um, and the issues around um, the ability to speak freely. Um, and I think we need to look at all of that in the round. So I wouldn't be willing to give such a commitment today because I think it would be premature and cut through some of the other work we're doing around domestic abuse. Nicole Martina Anderson. Uh, Minister, as you know, there were 600 racist hate crimes reported to the PSNI last year, and only 13 to 14% received prosecutions. And this is a shockingly low figure, as I'm sure you'd agree, particularly for the victims of those who reported those hate crimes and who endured them. So something we heard, I think, very clearly during the Black, Life, Black Lives Matter protests. So, Minister, given that you've only received the Marion report uh, last night, and I know you're still working your way through all of the recommendations, but what do you intend to do to try to ensure that people continue to report such crimes to the PSNI, despite the low uptake in prosecutions and also increase the prosecutions for those people who have reported racist hate crime? Well, I thank the member for the question. I think that there are a number of things that we can all do in terms of encouraging people to have the confidence to come forward and report hate crime when it, when it occurs. 
um, and to in, ensure that those with whom they are working in the justice system um, are fully appraised of it. And I have to say that one of the benefits of having this review taking place um, over recent months has been the increased debate and focus on the issue of hate crime and its impact on the wider community. And so I think that by raising awareness that will also help. But undoubtedly when people come to the justice system, when they find the courage to step forward and to tell someone of their concerns, uh, we want to ensure that the justice system responds effectively and efficiently. And I think that Judge Marinan's report provides a basis for us to ensure that that is the case. This is not the only um, crime that is reported with very low rates um, of prosecution and with very high rates of attrition of, of victims and witnesses. Similarly, with domestic abuse offences and sexual offences, we, we experience the same thing. And so one of the things that I'm looking at very actively is a victims of crime commissioner, someone who can advocate and support victims going through the process so that we ensure that the justice system is responsive to their individual needs. I call Daniel McCrossan. Uh, thank you, Deputy Speaker, and I thank the Minister for the answers to the questions so far. Minister, the public consultation led by Judge Desmond uh, Marion reports having over 1,000 submissions. Notably, 80% of these were described as online submissions. Does the Minister agree with me that any legislation deriving from the review must, be, must take serious account of the growing level of hate crime evident online? Absolutely, um, and indeed, that's something that is um, is. is fully referenced within the report and the recommendations. As members will be aware, um, online hate crime and indeed online crime generally is a reserved matter for Westminster. However, I have already been in touch with the Home Office and spoken with Priti Patel um, and some of her colleagues, as well as colleagues in DCMS who are taking forward a white paper on online um, hate crime. And so what we want to do in terms of that work on online harms is to ensure that either they will take it forward or alternatively that they will consider giving this assembly the power to take forward local um, resolutions. I happen to believe that in this particular instance it is probably best dealt with um, at, the, at Westminster level because I believe that the level of clout that we have with organisations like Facebook and Twitter is much greater at that level or indeed on a pan-European level where we actually have some leverage around what their community standards are. I have to say having seen some of the hate speech that is published um, regularly on Twitter or Facebook and a number of other similar platforms, were it to be published in any normal newspaper, the newspaper would, would simply not exist, um, and that it is allowed to be on those platforms from anonymous sources um, that are untraceable um, in order to pester and threaten and intimidate people and to spread hate and incite violence, I think is unacceptable. And I do at times wonder what the community standards could be of any organisation that doesn't find some of those comments um, in defiance of their own community standards. I call Steve Egan. I thank the Minister for our, our remarks so far. Does the Minister believe that the terminology hate crime should now encompass the term sectarian as well? Well, that's, a, that's the first recommendation um, that uh, Judge Marinan has placed in his report. And I have to say that I think there is huge merit in what he has asked for, in that he recognises that there are crimes that are motivated in our society um, by sectarian hatred. And I think that that is an aggravating factor in those crimes. And the way that he is suggesting that those be dealt with, um, and indeed all hate crimes be dealt with, is as an aggravating factor with, with existing crimes. So, for example, assault that is motivated by hate, whether that be sectarian, whether that be um, based around people's um, sexual identity um, or whether that be based um, around people's religion or race, uh, we then have a uh 
a, a factor a, attached that would lead to higher um, penalties when it comes to sentencing. I think it is appropriate that sectarianism be included in that mix, because I think undoubtedly um, there are areas where we see the impact of hate crime, the chill factor, the threat, the intimidation, the violence that goes with it, but also the stuff that is perhaps more pervasive but puts people in their place and lets them know who's in control. If we're not in, in favour of coercive control in the home through domestic abuse, we certainly shouldn't accept coercive control in our communities. I call Paula Bradshaw. Deputy Speaker, Minister, um, one of the recommendations was that the definition of hate crime should be extended to include gender-motivated offences. Have you any initial thoughts on that? There are a number of additional areas um, in terms of this, in addition to looking at sectarianism as a particular form of hate crime. There is also the issue of adding age and sex or gender and variations um, in gender characteristics and gender identity um, to the list of hate crimes. Again, this is something that we would want to look at very carefully um, in terms of the overall context in the report. But I think in light of what we have seen, um, even just in recent days, with attacks, multiple attacks over a short period on women um, in our own city, I think that there is certainly merit to look where um, the motivation um, for an attack um, is the gender of the person um, who is being attacked. It also, and I'm glad to see, it also deals with transgender issues in the report, because I think it's incredibly important um, that transgender issues are dealt with at the same time as all of the other issues, because that is an increasing area um, where people are experiencing um, hate crime and indeed discrimination, and it's something that I think we have to prepare for um, and deal with adequately. Moving on, I call Robin Newton. Mr. Deputy Speaker, question number four. The Northern Ireland Prison Service has a central role to play in seeking to make our community safe as we contribute to reducing reoffending and improving the effectiveness of the justice system. It is essential that we hold those in our care safely and securely, and it is equally important that we make the community safer by supporting and challenging people to change as we focus on rehabilitation, resettlement and reintegration into society. To do this, it is important that we have the right infrastructure. There has already been considerable investment in the Northern Ireland Prison Service under the Prisons 2020 programme. This has included the construction and opening of Davis House at McGabry Prison, modernising the fleet used by prisoner escorting and court custody service, and significant improvements in how modern technology is used to support people in our care. Subject to funding being made available, that investment will continue, and Northern Ireland Prison Service has identified four priority areas for consideration in the next three years. Uh, thank, thank the Minister for, for her uh, answer to the question. Minister, no prison service can achieve the high standards that we all would want uh, without the dedication of the staff employed within the prison service at, at all levels. And all of those staff are agents of change and indeed reform, whether within the prison or within the Young Offenders Centre. Can I ask the Minister specifically what investment will take place in upgrading the skills, the qualifications and the knowledge of the prison staff at all levels? 
Mr Speaker, there is a continual um, improvement programme for prison staff in terms of their training, but also in terms of supporting them um, in other learning that they may wish to take. So as part of their continued professional development, uh, that is something that is very important. We also invest and intend to invest um, in the well-being of our prison officers because it is an, in an incredibly complex and stressful job that they undertake. And so I am now waiting the outcome of the review which I commissioned um, into dealing um, with particularly mental health health, um, but also other issues that might arise as a result of people working in the prison service, to look at the support we can give people while in service, but also after they leave. And I call our newest member, Nicholas Brogan. I'm asking Corla. Um, concerns have been raised that Woodlands Juvenile Justice Centre has been used as a place of safety for young people when beds have not been found for them in suitable places by social services. Would the Minister agree with me that the Juvenile Justice Centre as a prison is not an appropriate place of safety and should not be used as a children's home? Well, Mr Deputy Speaker, it's not something that I'm aware of in terms of that particular allegation. However, to be clear, people who are committed to our care um, come into our custody having first passed through the courts. So someone has made a judgment as to whether or not they should be committed to, um, to, to our, our, our system. Um, in terms of um, Woodlands Juvenile Justice Centre, as you know, we are taking forward a piece of work um, in terms of the reform um, of Woodlands to try to produce a care and justice campus, because many of the young people who will arrive, both in the care centre um, at Lockview um, and also um, in, in Woodlands, will be the same young people at different stages in their development. And so we're working very closely with the Health Minister in order to bring forward a proper campus that will allow for their individual needs and a need based approach to be taken, to remove some of the stigma I think that the member is concerned about, about people being committed to custody rather than care. I call Rachel Woods. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and I thank the Minister for her answer so far. Would the Minister support the installation of technology such as body scanners in the Northern Ireland Prison Service to be able to quickly identify people who are or are not, importantly, carrying illegal drugs and substances on their person? I think the technology has a role to play, though it may not be as cut and dried as the member suggests in terms of its ability to um, determine whether people are or are not carrying contraband into the prisons. However, we are, of course, always interested in the use of technology where we can and, of course, subject to the budgets that are available to um, prison service in order to enable um, us to minimise um, the amount um, of time that people have to spend, for example, in searches and, and other opportunities. Um, we would want to, want to maximise the use of technology in that regard. But it isn't a straightforward issue, um, Mr Deputy Speaker, and it is one that will require significant investment in the present estate, and that will be obviously dependent on the outcome of the budget. And I call Daniel McCrossan. Thank you, Deputy Speaker, and again thank you to the Minister. Uh, question 5, Minister. A maximum sentence of 14 years imprisonment currently applies for the offences of causing death by dangerous driving, causing death by careless driving whilst under the influence of drink or drugs, and causing death by careless driving and failing to give a specimen. The report on responses to my department's review of sentencing confirms support for an increase in the maximum sentence for these offences and increasing minimum periods of disqualification for the offences and applying the disqualification period after the custodial part of any sentence has been served. I am not yet in a position to advise on the impact of the sentencing review on those convicted of causing death by dangerous driving or driving while under the influence of drink or drugs. But what I can say is that I find the arguments in favour of longer maximum sentences and changes to disqualif 
disqualification periods persuasive, and I would expect them to be reflected in any decisions that I might take. Thank you, Deputy Speaker, and I thank the Minister for that answer and also welcome the uh, increase in sentencing and also in the time that someone is disqualified. And also to thank the Minister for meeting with Peter Dolan, father of Enda Dolan, who continues to campaign hard for all those families who have lost a loved one to a dangerous driver or a driver who has been behind the wheel whilst intoxicated. Given, what has, given the sentencing to date, Minister, and how painful it has been for those families, do you believe or do you agree that the sentences handed down in previous cases have failed many families who believed the sentence was just too lenient? Well, Mr. Speaker, the member will appreciate that I can't um, comment on the issue of whether sentences are too lenient or otherwise, much as I may have personal opinions. As Justice Minister, it would be inappropriate for me because it's a matter for the judiciary to decide on the leniency or otherwise of sentences and indeed um, for the Director of Public Prosecutions to appeal it where he feels that is necessary. However, I would say that I share his admiration. Um, for Peter Dolan and the work that he and his wife have done um, in respective campaigns. It will not change their situation. It will not change their tragic loss um, of Enda um, in, a horrific, um, in a horrific death um, by dangerous driving. But it will undoubtedly, I think, um, bring some comfort to others. I think part of the problem with sentencing isn't necessarily always whether the sentences are appropriate, but the complexity of our sentencing structures that often make it impenetrable for families to understand why sentences have been given and what the sentences mean. And that's something that we are taking seriously as we look at the sentencing review, because I believe that for sentencing to be effective, um, it also needs to be easily understood. Um, can I ask the Minister if she could give an updated timeline around the next steps, um, around the next stages of the sentencing review, including how long she believes it will take to complete this programme of work? Thank you. Well, I thank the member for her question, and I want to extend my condolences to her because I heard in previous remarks um, to the previous Minister um, about her own loss um, of family members as a result um, of, of driving incidents, and so I do want to extend my condolences to her and to other families who have suffered likewise. Um, it would be my intention to take decisions, particularly around sentencing, um, hopefully this side of Christmas. Um, it will then be a matter for us um, to consult um, in terms of my preliminary decisions um, with other justice partners, um, and as a result of that, then develop um, instructions for Legislative Council um, to take forward to start to draft um, appropriate legislation. That will be done in two stages. So there are a number of elements to um, the, the sentencing review itself, but I intend to accelerate. Um, the area around um, dangerous driving um, and drink driving um, as my priority area, because that was the one that came through as a very strong priori priority area in the consultation, and then to take through the remainder um, of the recommendations in slightly slower pace. So I would hope that we will be able at least to get to that stage. Members will be aware that the legislative programme, it sounds strange then and now in 2020, but our legislative programme in the Department of Justice is pretty much now full um, to the end of this mandate. However, that doesn't preclude us from being able to um, start to draft um, legislation that would then be ready to take forward urgently in the next mandate. I call Morris Bradley. Thank you, Mr Deputy Speaker. Question six. As of the 1st of December, 51 PSNI personnel were absent due to COVID-19, um, having been confirmed um, as positive. 
There were also 308 police officers and staff within the PSNI self-isolating and one person absent on compassionate leave due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you, Mr Deputy Speaker, and I thank the Minister for her answers. But, Minister, would she not agree with me that it is vital that the PSA are not drawing personnel away from investigations into drugs and criminality to police COVID breaches? Uh, and can I ask, are there any sufficient numbers available to provide community protection, uh, particularly patrols in the community, and in particular in my local area, which would be rural? Well, Mr Speaker, the management of resources within the PSNI is a matter for the Chief Constable and not for the Justice Minister, and he will determine how those resources are deployed. There has been a challenge, obviously, for the police at this time in terms of both policing and the response to COVID-19, um, and very much re reflecting, I think, the demands of this chamber that they would be part of that response, um, where people are breaking um, the rules around this. That does take up time um, from a limited resource. Um, but it is, of course, always important that they continue to deliver against their vision of being a police force that is responsible, visible, accessible and victim-focused. And so I think that we have to accept that the police have been pulled in a number of directions, as have we all during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. But I have no doubt that they remain committed to serving all communities, rural and urban, um, and on all issues, um, including regular crime. And I think we have seen, even during this pandemic, um, some particularly impressive work by the PSNI whether it's part of Operation Arbatia or indeed um, other crime um, being detected in local communities. I call Pat Sheehan. Thank the Minister for answers thus far. And I'm wondering, could you give an assessment of how our own department has been affected this year uh, uh, by virtue of the fact that many staff have been absent as a result of COVID-19? With respect to the department, um, it is always difficult when staff are absent. Um, our department is a small department, but it is very much, um, it's very much outward facing. So most of the people um, within the department work in contact facing roles with the public. Um, their engagement has also been curtailed as a result of COVID-19, um, because where they would normally be out on site working with people, out um, engaging with communities um, and doing much of that work, it has been much more challenging. We also have had to manage things that we would not normally have had to manage whether that be keeping our prisons as far as possible COVID-free, um, ensuring that we have safe spaces within the courts so that we're able to continue to deliver justice in a timely way, um, or whether that is in terms of our wider work in local communities dealing with some of the um, outworkings, for example, um, of lack of access to youth services and some of the diversionary work in which members of my staff are involved, um, particularly around interfaces and other places. So it has been a challenging year, um, Mr Deputy Speaker, but I would have to say um, credit to the departmental staff in terms of the amount of work that they have been able to put in. And I think the fact that we have seen so little slippage, for example, um, on substantive pieces of work like our legislative programme and indeed many of the other topics um, that we're dealing with is credit to them and the amount of work that they've put in. And that is the end of our period of time for listed questions. We now move on for 15 minutes of topical questions. Can I advise members that questions, topical questions number one and five have been withdrawn? So I now call Gordon Dunn. Deputy Speaker, as Justice Minister, does she recognise the terrible injustice, pain and agony of many of the innocent victims of terrorism? including those victims of atrocities like Lamont House, Enniskillen, Oma, Taban, Shankill, the Shankill bombing and indeed the darkly 
shootings, when law-abiding decent people were caught up in terrible events. Why no justice in the courts and, indeed, no public inquiries for the victims and their families of such atrocities? Well, Mr Deputy Speaker, it's very difficult for me um, to be able to answer a question that engages both the investigation by the RUC and subsequently the PSNI of those atrocities, um, that engages the decisions of the Director of Public Prosecutions in respect of whether cases that are brought to him meet the evidential test for prosecution, and then would engage the responsibility of judges who again are independent but make decisions as to whether people are prosecuted. But I would remind the member um, that there are many families, and he is quite right, um, there are many families who will not receive and have not received um, justice and truth as a result um, of the atrocities that were committed during the Troubles. And I think that is hugely regrettable. It is a source of pain um, for those families. Um, and I believe that that needs to be remedied. And I believe that the remedy needs to be a comprehensive one. And so I believe that the remedy for that was at be as best we could get in the Stormont House Agreement. That has now been resiled upon um, by the UK Government, um, and we are now in a hiatus and we are unaware um, of what the alternative proposition may look like. But every day that passes without justice being delivered is another day of anguish and pain for those victims. And so I would repeat what I said to the Secretary of State last night um, in a call with him. I believe that there is a degree of urgency to this which is not reflected um, in how it has been handled since March. I believe that the alternative mechanisms that he intends to bring forward need to be brought forward now. Because, to be clear, uh, Mr Deputy Speaker, the current justice system and the current Justice Department and our budgets are neither designed for nor big enough to deal with all of the legacy issues that are now arriving on our desk. With increasing legacy litigation, with increasing pressures um, on time of staff um, and on the number of inquiries that are likely to come forward, it will simply not be possible for us to police both the past and the future. Gordon Thanks, Mr. Deputy Speaker. I do thank the Minister for a detailed answer. And I would urge you know, the, the need for justice for all innocent victims of violence. Does the Minister concur with uh, Stephen Farry, our North Down MP, in a statement where he, he supported the Finucane inquiry when he stated a public inquiry is warranted in this case? Well, Mr Speaker, this isn't Ask Alliance. This is justice questions. So this is a question about my position as Justice Minister, not a question about my position as leader of the Alliance Party. However, I first of all in answer and want to acknowledge the hurt and disappointment of the Finucane family, and they will no doubt be experiencing that just um, as, as the member has said other families will as a result of the Secretary of State's decision. I recognise that these are complex and difficult and have profound impacts on the families concerned. I spoke with the Secretary of State last night, as I have said, and I outlined my concerns to him. I have raised those on a number of occasions with him since March about the absence of any coherent and credible plan for dealing with the legacy of the past, despite commitments in New Decade New Approach. It was a decision for the Secretary of State, ultimately, but it is the justice system here in Northern Ireland that is left to deal with the outcome. And on the substantive point, do I believe that it is necessary that there is a public inquiry? Yes, I do. I think when a government stands up in Parliament 
and admits and apologises for collusion, a family have a right to know what involvement that government had and its predecessor governments had in that collusion. I call Jerry Carl. I want to ask the Minister her view that the PSNI is currently involved in a joint EU-funded research project called Roxanne, which works in tandem with the Israeli Israel Ministry of Public Security, which includes Israeli National Police, including the Border Police and the Israel Prison Service, and oversees uh, the committing of serious human rights abuse. I think the Minister is aware of this, and would ask her, her view on it. Um, well, in reverse order, yes, I am aware of the Roxanne programme, um, but it is an operational matter for the Chief Constable um, as to what programmes um, officers are involved in. It is a European programme. It involves quite a number of nation states within the EU, and the direct cooperation between the PSNI and other EU states is something that is to be encouraged um, and welcomed. Um, with respect to the involvement of um, Israel, I am also aware that that um, is as a, as a separate issue to the main involvement in Roxanne, um, but it's a question that I think the member would be best um, to take up with the Chief Constable himself. It is important for the Minister to comment on this, since she has uh, declared other PSNI actions were proportionate in other cases, such as the Black Lives Matter protests. Minister, according to the Amnesty International, uh, the Israel National Police, and I quote, have been involved in extrajudicial executions and other unlawful killings, using ill treatment and torture, even against children. Minister, Sunday was International Day of Solidarity with Palestine, in which millions of people across the world are engaged in activity to condemn the Israeli state, its occupation, aggression, and racist laws, and given the fact that other state uh, police forces have put out this programme, uh, and given the Minister has a, a duty to uphold justice, would she commit to pressing the PSNI to withdraw from this programme based on the daily denial of justice for Palestinian people? Mr Speaker, I would refer the member to what I just said. It is a matter for the Chief Constable and indeed for the Policing Board to take this forward. But just to be clear, when it comes to the Israeli-Palestine question, I voted for recognition for Palestine when I was a Member of Parliament um, in a vote there. I have made it very clear uh, my views in terms of some of the actions that the Israeli government have taken. I detach that, I have to say, from the people themselves, because I think that their government is often not a good representation of the individuals um, in the country. But I want to be really clear about this. It is not my role to direct the PSNI in any of their jobs. And I also want to correct the member because he has, for whatever reason, latched on to this idea that I said that the policing of Black Lives Matter protests um, were proportionate. They were not, and I did not say that. I did not say that, and I have a list of quotes that I have made on this issue because I knew the member would raise it. And I did not say that. I said that their, their policing of COVID generally was proportionate and appropriate. And there is a distinct difference between that. I also stressed on every occasion that I could not comment on individual circumstances. I call Robin Newton. Thank you, Mr Deputy Speaker. Uh, Minister, can I ask you if you would be able to quantify the backlog of cases that, uh, due to the pandemic, were due to be taken uh, before the courts? Um, and uh, uh, when the time log might be for addressing those? Um, yes, prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, there were approximately 8,000 criminal cases within the court system. However, with the closure of some courts during lockdown, this rose to approximately 12,800 cases by early September, so a rise of about 59%. With the reopening of almost all courts from August onwards, um, the cases disposed of by the courts have exceeded those received, and consequently the outstanding caseload has reduced. 
The most recent real-time management information indicates the figure now stands at around 11,255 cases. The figures also show that recovery is taking place across all areas and the number of cases in the system are reducing by around 175 cases per week. The figures in relation to outstanding caseloads for civil and family business can't be generated retrospectively, and because they include cases which may have been settled privately between parties, they can't be interpreted in the same way as criminal cases. Thank you, Mr Deputy Speaker. I thank the Minister for that very detailed answer. Can I ask the Minister if there has been any assessment carried out on the mental health problems uh, or support offered to those who perhaps are the victims of crime uh, and have been waiting such a long time to have the cases dealt with? There has been no um, systemic um, research done in terms of the impact, but there has been proactive action taken. So, for example, um, Victim Support Service um, have been engaged in keeping people updated and offering them adequate support during the time that they are waiting. Um, I know that the Public Prosecution Service have also engaged additional resource in terms of actually uh, communicating uh, with people who are waiting for cases to come to trial. Um, and obviously, every one of the justice organisations has a recovery plan in place to take a Account, um, of some of the challenges that we will face. We also meet regularly as a criminal justice board um, to ensure that our response to the impact of COVID on the courts is one that is balanced across all of the different issues. It would have been easy to reduce on the face of it the number of cases much more quickly um, by having quick disposals um, of those more simple cases. But I was very committed to the fact that we needed to be able to return to a, a situation where, as well as dealing with those simpler disposals, we were able also to hear complex cases uh, with jury trials, because I think it's important to recognise that those are some of the most sensitive and difficult cases, and to keep those people waiting a disproportionate amount of time simply to get better statistics, I think would be unjust in the extreme. And so we have ensured that we are able to continue uh, with jury trials, and indeed we are hoping to open additional courts um, in Laganside um, over the next number of months. I call Alan Chambers. Thank you, Mr. Deputy Speaker. Uh, Minister, uh, after the understandable delays uh, caused by the pandemic in relation to dealing with policing injury on duty claims, uh, can the Minister confirm that these appeals are being considered again and are progressing in a timely manner? Well, Mr Speaker, there were a number of issues in terms of policing injury and duty claims, and COVID was one of those. Um, there is now progress being made in that respect, but I'm happy to write to the member because I don't have all of the detail um, in front of me today. I'm happy to write to the member um, and give him further detail as to where we are exactly in that programme. Alan Chambers for supplementary. appreciate that, Minister, and I look forward to receiving that. But my supplementary, and perhaps you could address that in the letter, is uh, are you satisfied that there are sufficient administration resources in place to expeditiously discharge the backlog in cases awaiting consideration? Thank you. Well, Mr Speaker, the issue of dealing with resources is always going to be a challenging one in a small department um, with limited resources. So we do exactly what we can. We have a number of priorities that we are dealing with at this time, a number of which um, have a deadline attached to them. But we are conscious that those matters that may have been delayed due to COVID um, are amongst those priorities, and we do try to progress things as, fastly and as fast as we can and in as timely a manner as possible. Thank you. I call Pam Cameron. Mr Deputy Speaker, um, can, can I ask the Minister to provide an update on the implementation of the pay award announced in February of this year for PSNI officers, which was backdated to the 1st of September 2019? 
Yeah, I mean, um, I think in terms of the pay award for last year, that has now progressed through. Um, certainly, um, I signed off on one of the pay awards um, earlier this year. I think the current pay award um, is still under consideration, but there is good progress being made on that, and I think that that is now um, between my department and the Department of Finance. But again, I'm happy to write to the member just to confirm the detail of the most recent pay award. Thank you. I thank the Minister for that answer, and I would appreciate that clarity because I have had um, several um, officers contact me um, looking for that pay reward to uh, be made available to them. Um, does the Minister agree that issues such as pay award delay and potential impact on spending review announced by the Chancellor will have a negative impact on our frontline workforce numbers? Well, I suppose there are two issues with this. I mean, the first is about delay. We have sought to eliminate as much delay as we can, as you'll appreciate. Um, there is a process that has to be gone through in terms of the pay remit um, going through the PRRB um, and then coming out um, to the department and then also making our case um, when it comes to the Department of Finance. Um, the wider issue in terms of the, um, the stringent um, measures that may be imposed from elsewhere on us is a whole other matter altogether. And it will be a matter, I think, for all departments, not just my own, and indeed for all of those who receive funding through central government, um, to reflect on the fact that we may find ourselves in what is a, in budgetary terms, a standstill situation next year, and not with a particularly bright economic horizon ahead. That is sim the simple reality, and it will require us all, I think, to um, manage our expectations um, in line with our budgets. Um, could I ask the Minister further to the findings set out in the annual report recently published by the Organised Crime Ta Task Force, if she could outline whether or not she intends to bring forward new legislation to help tackle organised crime? I thank the member for his question. There is a review um, of organised crime ongoing within the department, um, and I am, uh, that is currently underway. Um, and it would be our intention to look at the introduction of new offences um, at some at some point um, when that review is complete. However, there are other things that we are doing in the interim in order to tackle organised crime. So, for example, I have liaised with um, the Home Office to ensure that the Criminal Finances Act um, is commenced in Northern Ireland, which will lead to the implementation of unexplained wealth orders, um, account freezing and forfeiture, and a number of other financial measures, which I hope um, will act as a disincentive to those who are involved in organised crime because they believe it to be profitable. Um, I think when it is no longer profitable, um, we will find a decline in that kind of crime. And that is the end of our period of questions uh, to the Minister of Justice. Could I ask members to take their ease for a few moments before the urgent oral question to the Minister for the Economy?